Hey buddy, I hoid the droughts moving in, muscling in on your turf. To make matters worse, the man keeps telling you to limit your spigot. That drought is bad news, no fooling. But me and my boys can help. The water boys, on the water zone, Thursday nights at six. We'll help you protect your turf and save water. And hey, don't worry about it. Consider it a gift. Yeah, Louie, you heard the boss. We gotta listen in at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights. Okay, Vinny, you got it. The water zone, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. I'll tell our lawn it's now protected. You know it's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all about that drought, about that drought, 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 drought. Yeah, it's pretty clear. We're really short on blue. It's time to save it, save it, like we're supposed to do. Some say it's doom, gloom, and all our grass must go. But together we can make it and enjoy our golden state. It's all about that drought, about that drought, no water. It's all Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Water Zone Show. And uh, we're broadcasting live at KCAA 1050 AM on the radio, 106.5 FM, and soon syndicating into 102.3 FM. And want to welcome everybody to the show today. Hope everybody's having a great day. It's a beautiful day here in downtown San Bernardino. And today... Today is our fourth week of the month, and we usually do a agriculture show, and that's what we have in store today. And we also have our uh, our two wonderful hosts that will be joining in a second. Our normal co-host with me, myself, Mr. Mike Barron, he's taking the night off. I'm sure he's listening in. So, Mike, if you're watching, I'll give you a little wave to say hello to you. And I'd like to bring aboard uh, this uh, Ingi Bisconer and Paul McFadden from our micro-irrigation group. Hi, guys. How are you guys doing tonight? We're doing great, Rob. How are you? Well, I'm doing excellent. It's a wonderful day moving forward. Uh, the show's expanding. We're doing great, and uh, I'm excited. Well, that's cool. Well, uh, Paul and I are here in beautiful, sunny downtown El Cajon, and we're anxious to uh, uh, interview our two guests this evening. And, of course, the theme tonight is um, making more water and getting more from it, uh, a common theme in agriculture, be using our water to produce more food, fuel, and fiber for uh, the city, the county, the state, the nation, and the world. So, so, we, all, so uh, we all can live. <laughs> yeah, so that we can all um, live happily ever after. So I'll uh, hand it all over to my partner, Paul McFadden, here for introducing the first guest. Thanks, Rob. Uh, we'd like to uh, uh, first uh, introduce uh, Sam Kramer. Sam, are you on the line? Uh, yes, I am, Paul. Great. Uh, let me uh, let me introduce you. Sam is the is a professional engineer, uh, applications engineer manager for IDE Americas. He is a registered professional engineer with only over twenty years of experience. He provides a wide array of experience and expertise in industrial and municipal water and wastewater engineering, and operation and maintenance services at petrochemical, aerospace, industrial, municipal, solid waste drinking water, and wastewater facilities. Representative project experience includes reverse osmosis, thermal desalination, construction dewatering, multi-phase extraction, soil vapor extraction, in situ, ex situ, bioremediation, air stripping, biological filtration, ultraviolet, hydrogen peroxide advanced oxidation, and granulated activated tr uh, carbon treatment technologies. Well, that was a mouthful. Well, I tell you, that's a lot of technology. <laughs> Norman, it sounds like what you hear in a toothpaste. <laughs> Since joining IDE, uh, uh, Sam is responsible for applications engineering, proposal development, and optimization of thermal and membrane-based industrial process water and drinking water treatment systems. So with that, welcome, Sam. Thank you for uh, uh, making some time available for us. 
Tell us a little bit, if you would, please, about your background uh, and who IDE is, what they do, and how they do it, please. Sure. Uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, uh, my background uh, in, in civil engineering and the first part of my career was primarily focused on uh, soil and groundwater remediation projects at uh, commercial industrial facilities, primarily involved with the remediation of sites that were contaminated from legacy aerospace or underground storage tanks uh, uh, and all, all aspects of uh, investigating, monitoring those sites, uh, designing remediation systems, constructing and operating them. <clears throat> I worked in that field primarily for about 12 years in the first part of my career and eventually uh, started to look, think about new and different ways that I might be able to make a, a greater contribution. And uh, with the increased growth in, in the Southwest uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, it, it became really apparent to me that uh, and, and it's really everyone else lives in the area that the existing water supplies are, are limited. Um, and uh, also with, with some warmer climate uh, issues, we have uh, reduced snowpack reliability. So our, our water resources are, are limited. And, and uh, you know, as we may know, much of our water uh, is in, in Southern California anyway is imported from the State Water Project, from Los Angeles Aqueduct, Colorado River Aqueduct, and about 30% of it is only only groundwater. So essentially, there's, there's this, we have a growing population. We have uh, and no real new sources of water. So at, at the time, I, I started thinking about desalination as part of the, the solution to, to all water issues in Southern California. And I looked around at a few different companies and, and uh, came across IDE. Uh, IDE stands for Israel Desalination Engineering, one of the uh, foremost uh, companies building, designing and building and operating desalination plants around the world. And their involvement in the, the uh, at the time, proposed Carlsbad and still proposed Huntington Beach desalination projects that are being uh, developed by Poseidon Resources. In addition, as, as IDE is an Israeli-owned uh, company and base company, it was a personal interest to me as I, I'd spent a year in college uh, uh, doing a year abroad there and, and uh, uh had a, a good experience there, so I, I recall from that experience uh, working in an agricultural setting uh, how water conservation was a was such a huge priority and, a, and a, really a part of the, the DNA of Israelis uh, learning to cope with uh, limited water resources and still developing a strong agricultural country. Uh, that impressed upon me, and uh, I thought, well, that would be a great great opportunity to to try to get to, to work for this company and. Uh, Kept after it and interviewed a few times, and uh, soon enough found myself uh, hired on as uh, as the applications engineer since uh, 2008 with IDE. Well, um, uh, Sam, you folks have just commissioned a, um, I think it's billed as the largest desal plant on the West Coast in Carlsbad, which is not far from here in El Cajon, and it's very close to my home in Cardiff. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that project and... Um, I mean, I know that IDE has projects all over the world um, and that you may be involved in those, but in particular for California and for Southern California in particular and all the agricultural and urban and environmental uses for water that's needed here, how is that new plant playing into those needs? Sure. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, start with a little bit of introduction into the role that DSAL played in the Israeli water economy. And, and then I'll, I'll transition into uh, Carlsbad. So in the early 2000s, uh, in the, uh, with a large population growth in, in Israel, uh, primarily associated with immigration from the former Soviet Union, had a large population growth and decreased precipitation. And they had reached a, a real critical point uh, in the Sea of Galilee, which is the main water reservoir in the country, uh, and decided that they had implemented very efficient irrigation, drip irrigation systems, water-efficient uh, fixtures in homes, and a very aggressive recycling, uh, water recycling program, one of the most uh, uh, complete recy water recycling uh, done in the world there. But still there was a gap. And um, so the country really started on a, a pretty aggressive campaign to, into seawater desalination. IDE built three of the plants now that supply uh, about 60% of the domestic water supply in Israel. Um, 
So the Carlsbad plant was is developed by Poseidon Resources. Uh, they have uh, done this as a, solely a privately funded project. Uh, they have they're uh, putting up the finance. Uh, they've subcontracted the design, the construction, and the operation and maintenance, and have a long term thirty year water purchase agreement with the San Diego County Water Authority. So uh, no public money was involved in the uh, in the completion of the project. Only once water started flowing. Uh, from the project last November and uh, sold to the San Diego County Water Authority uh, were, were any public monies involved in development or, or purchase of that water. So at the moment, this Carlsbad project supplies about 8% of the water to uh, San Diego County. Uh, the plant produces 50 million gallons uh, per day on average of uh, seawater. It does vary somewhat depending on the uh, dispatch requirements from the San Diego County Water Authority. <clears throat> and uh, has uh, really contributed to uh, a very secure and reliable source of water for Carlsbad, contributing to the many other sources, the groundwater uh, supply and and surface water supply from the State Water Project and and, uh, Colorado River Project, Uh, but but very much a landmark. It certainly is the largest uh, seawater desal plant in the Western Hemisphere uh, to date. And... uh, we're also working on another project for the city of Santa Barbara. This was a plant, seawater desalt plant that was originally built in the early 1990s and operated for a short time that was then uh, uh, taken offline due to some high expensive operation at the time. And uh, there, there was the March miracle at that time, uh, which uh, limited the need for that. Uh, but this plant, now in Santa Barbara, they have... Uh, Again, a, a drought condition, and the plant's being rehabilitated. It's a much smaller plant than Carlsbad, uh, about 3 million gallons per day. Uh, but that plant will be a baseload plant and be operating uh, uh, most of the time. You know, I, I toured um, this your new plant in uh, Carlsbad shortly after it was commissioned earlier this year, and I recall the engineers saying that they were moving up to Huntington Beach for another project as well. So is there another desal plant, uh, yet another one going in? Along the California uh, coast, yes. Poseidon is in the plan in in uh, uh, getting towards the end of a, a very long process to build a very similar plant uh, to the Carlsbad plant. It'll also be a 50 MGD desalination plant. Uh, the project is still in a permitting phase at the moment, uh, but it's expected to proceed uh, probably uh, early part of next year, uh, when the the schedule is. Fantastic. So, um, water were, oh, go ahead. No, I, I, please, I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. I was just saying, in addition to seawater, uh, we're also involved in, in inland uh, brackish water desal plants, uh, smaller decentralized plants, which are uh, uh, typical of the brackish water inland plants. They're typically not as large as the seawater plants. Yeah. I believe uh, there was one of those up in, uh, in the Morro Bay area, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, Morro Bay has a seawater desal plant. I'm not familiar with a brackish water plant, but there's a smaller uh, seawater plant that had been installed about 15 years ago. I don't believe it's operating. Got it. So the obviously there's a there's a, uh, a cost associated with uh, uh, taking uh, salinity out of the out of the seawater to make uh, make it uh, uh, potable to drink. Uh, with the additional cost, as we all know, uh, you know, uh, energy uh, prices are up. Uh, explain that a little bit, if you would, Sam, uh, how the cost of the water with the energy and so forth, how it, uh, how it makes it uh, an economic benefit to, to the users, uh, even with the additional cost. Sure. Um, well, it's it's important to keep in mind talking about energy consumption. That's usually the first thing a lot of people say when discussing uh, desalination that the energy cost is is high. Uh, it's important to recognize, however, that you know, nearly sixty percent of the water that we receive in Southern California, uh, there's a pretty high energy consumption associated with that, with all the, the pumping energy to bring it here. Nonetheless, uh, seawater desalination does require uh, more energy uh, than that, approximately fifty percent more energy. Um, if you put it in layman's terms, uh, the amount of energy that it, requ- it, that it would require uh, per person is about the, the amount of energy it takes to run a refrigerator for your home. So it is more energy. Uh, is it a great deal more energy? You know, that, that could be, that's debatable, but 
the advantage, of course, is that you have a very reliable, uh, unlimited source of water. And uh, by no means should you consider seawater desalinization, except maybe if you're on an island, to be your only source of water, and we certainly wouldn't here. But it does provide a, a, an augmentation of our existing water supply, enabling us to have a reliable and sustained water supply. And uh, we don't have to panic every time there's a drop with uh, seawater. If seawater is part of the, the, uh, uh, our network of water supply. Yeah, and if you put it into perspective, I mean, what is the cost of not having water? Uh, and even a nominal increase, you're saying 50% energy increase. I'm not sure how that would translate to a how much more expensive is it than our other imported supplies, but um, that's, that's, that's really beside the point. If you have no other imported supplies, and, and like you say, the real value is that it is reliable and you know that you have it, so... Um, the additional expense, you're finding the public is uh, accepting that, and, and maybe the farmers as well. We're going to be talking to the Farm Bureau after um, after your interview. Have the farmers been receptive to uh, buying this water, even though it's a higher cost than maybe other supplies, or is it competitive? Uh, that's a good question. We, ha- we uh, haven't been involved directly with any, uh, any agricultural context in California. Um, I, I will say this, but, you know, of all the water on the planet, about two and a half percent of the water is is fresh water. Uh, the rest is seawater. And like you said, you've got to have water to have a, a viable economy, to have a viable agri- viable agriculture. And if done in a responsible manner, and when combined with uh, uh, modern farming techniques that minimize water consumption, uh, optimization of, of crop crop selection, desalination plants can can really provide you a long term sure water supply and and the, the market can adapt to uh, the, to the price of water uh, once it's known that the water is always going to be there it's, always, it's going to be steady it, it, it may require a change in the way we do business uh, but it, it, it is possible to have a thriving agricultural economy and I think one example that's uh, uh, to to state this is you know if I look at the Israeli example again uh, Oranges were always a major export from Israel for many years to Europe. And then if you went to Europe, uh, chances are the oranges you were eating were from Israel. Um, a very water-intensive crop. Today, there's very little, if any, export of oranges uh, from Israel. Uh, however, those crops, that those fields that used to grow oranges, now are growing other crops that are less water-intensive. Uh, right. So the, the, the market, the agricultural com- community, while it may be painful, uh, can adapt uh, in the long term, and and a thriving agricultural economy can exist, but there may be some adjustment that's needed. So you mentioned um, that, that that the plants have some some issues to deal with that that make it more expensive. Can you can you talk about some of those drawbacks uh, to desalination that you've had to um, address? I, I know that it took a long time to get that plant permitted, and how did you overcome? those drawbacks, and how is it going today? Sure. Um, just to be clear, we're the uh, designer of the, the desalination plant, uh, so I'll speak in general about the, the permitting issues uh, related to the, the intake and the discharge. However, that's not necessarily IDE scope on the project. However, uh, there are a couple of issues with desalination that, that, we need, to, that need to be discussed. One is that... Uh, Desalination, seawater desalination plants, anyway, need to be located along the coast. And uh, at least in California, the coastal land is uh, pretty expensive, and there are limited sites where it's feasible to build a industrial facility like that. Um, in addition, uh, seawater uh, uh, plants take a very long time to permit. I think the Carlsbad plant took over 12 years to from from inception to the receipt of the necessary permits to build the plant. Uh, the, the environmental concerns associated with seawater desalination are primarily involved with the, the uh, impingement and entrainment of marine organisms. And so, uh, when you are extracting seawater, uh, you need to be very, you need to complete the design in a way to minimize the the uptake of marine organisms into the plant. Uh, and you can do that by controlling the intake velocity and by installing uh, screening mechanisms to screen out 
uh, aquatic life from the from the uh, from the desal plant. That's that's the the uh, one of the major uh, considerations when siting the plant to locate it in the area and design your intake to minimize the, the, any damage to aquatic organisms. And the other issue is the brine. When you when you are completing a seawater desal project, about 50% of the seawater becomes permeate, which forms your drinking water. And the other 50% is uh, a, a concentrated brine, which is typically discharged out to the, back to the ocean. And the outfall structure where you discharge that needs to be designed in, in such a way that it minimizes the potential for uh, any increase in concentration of brine in the area uh, uh, near the outfall. And that can be done by uh, using diffuser systems or blending with other uh, water sources in Santa Barbara, for example, the brine discharge is blended with uh, treated wastewater to dilute the brine prior, back it, it, before it goes back out into the ocean. So certainly um, there is a potential for environmental damage, and that can be mitigated. That's fascinating. So, uh, uh, you, you know, Israel obviously has, has been using uh, desal systems for, for decades, uh, and they seem to be working very well. What do you see the future in California? Um, just a correction there. Decades in Israel is, uh, is I mean, there are a few plants, uh, but the seawater program really only started in the early 2000s, so the, the history is uh, um, uh, fairly new. Uh, however, it has made a dramatic improvement in the, in, the, uh, in the economic outlook for the country. There are a few different articles recently, uh, a book by... Uh, Gentleman named Seth Siegel called "Let There Be Water" that, that details that story and uh, and maybe of interest to your listeners. There's also a more recent article in Scientific American that, that talked about the very same subject. Um, however, in in California, uh, there are a few different proposed plants. There's the Huntington Beach plant that we talked about earlier. The San Diego County Water Authority is also considering building a plant in uh, at Camp Pendleton. Uh, the South Coast Water District is looking at another one in uh, Doheny Beach, uh, Dana Point area. Uh, the other one would be at West Basin up near uh, LAX. Uh, there's another plant that's being proposed there by West Basin Municipal Water District. Um, I mentioned Santa Barbara and possibly some of the other coastal communities uh, that have more limited water supplies. But th those are the main ones. At one time, there are about 15 different projects that were considered or at least in very early planning stages and probably about 30 percent of those will will probably see uh, happen in the next uh, five to ten years. Sam is the is the process getting easier now that Carlsbad is done uh, in terms of permitting and and the acceptance of the technology in uh, in some of the uh, the the communities up and down the coast um, easier no <laughs> Uh, there's certainly a, a lot of interest. Uh, the project has uh, uh, been a very positive one for just about everyone involved, and I think everyone recognizes that the technology is uh, a viable one and reliable technology. Uh, the, the, permitting, the, the permitting process is still a very long and complicated process, uh, and primarily the, the, the California Ocean Plan was amended uh, last year to... Uh, really be very, very protective of the marine environment. And um, while that's certainly um, uh, very important, and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say anything otherwise, um, we just have to recognize that whenever you're going to develop a new water source, whether it be a dam or a reservoir or a freshwater intake uh, from a, a river or a lake, uh, there are always environmental consequences. And there's a cost and benefit to, to everything we do to supply water. Uh, and all of them need to be done in a responsible manner to, to minimize impacts, but we have to recognize that there always will be some impact uh, and be realistic about it. Yeah, well, as our population increases, I think we're up to 39 million now, and our precipitation is not um, uh, as robust as it, as it has been in the last 150 years since we populated the state, and as the environment is suffering from all that and needs help as well, you would think that this would be a technology that would be coming very much more mainstream in the future, at least along the coast, because we, we have the option along the coast um, with a large body of seawater as a source of water. So 
Um, it looks like a rosy future for the technology. Would you agree? Do you have any closing thoughts? We have about another minute um, before we have to move to our uh, commercial break. Sure. Um, I think I think there will, there is a potential for other plants. Uh, uh, as I said before, it, it really needs to be done in, in concert with other uh, with water minimization through uh, improved agriculture through water recycling. It's really a. a uh, a blended source of our water, but certainly seawater desalination or brackish water desalination can be a uh, a long-term and reliable part of our, our water supply. We can do it reliably. We can do it cost-effectively. Uh, it, it, it most likely will be, and I believe should be, part of our water supply. Yeah, well, there you have it. We, we can make new water. I, they say that they don't make dirt anymore, but my goodness, we now can see that we can make new water. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time uh, and uh, to uh, take with us and to explain to not only us but our listeners this fascinating uh, service that you're providing and helping to provide for for the uh, folks in the state of uh, California. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, good luck with your future projects. Uh, look forward to hearing about them in the future as well. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great. All right, that, yeah, that was a that was a great uh great interview. We had uh on our portion uh, a couple months ago we had Mark Lambert, he's the CEO of IDE on and as you guys know we we also had uh, Seth Siegel and the Consul General of Israel David Siegel on talking about it and we're just stoked about reading about this every week. There's another article about what they do. So we're we're very excited to have uh Sam on and we appreciate that. Anyway, for those of you who are not shy and want to call in and speak to our guests or or us and ask us any question. Uh, if you're local, it's 909-888-5222. If you're calling outside the 909 area code, please dial 888-909-1050. And uh, let's go to a little commercial, and then we'll be back to the Water Zone. Hi, and welcome back to the Water Zone. Sorry, that was a little loud. <laughs> Getting closer to the mic. Uh, we're listening to NBC News Radio, KCAA, 10, 1050 AM and 106.5 FM. And we're going to turn it back over to Miss Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden on the uh, micro-irrigation group and uh, bring your next guest on. I'm sorry, Rob, I was on mute. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, so, uh, so thank you. Yes, we are here. Um, thank you. Uh, we uh, continuing with our theme uh, this evening of uh, making more water, which our first guest just went over, uh, desalinating seawater uh, and uh, making that a, a source of water for uh, humans and agriculture and other uses. And now we're going to be talking about how we can be more efficient with the water that we have or even some of the new water. And we have a representative from the farming community that will be uh, speaking to this. So um, uh, I'll introduce our next guest and make sure he's on. Eric, are you there? I'm right here, just waiting to chat. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Excellent. Welcome. Uh, well, thank you for uh, being here. Um, for our listening audience, Eric Larson is the executive director of the San Diego County Farm Bureau. He's held that position since January of '97. And Eric began working in San Diego County's agricultural industry, actually, uh, well before that, in 1971. Previous to joining the Farm Bureau, he spent 13 years as a general manager of an ag marketing cooperative. He currently serves as the director of the Southern California Water Committee and is on the executive committee of the San Diego Food Systems Alliance. In addition to his work in ag, he has served two terms as a member of the Carlsbad City Council and is a past director of the Carlsbad Municipal Water District and the San Diego County Water Authority and the Encina Wastewater Authority. So very active, not only in agriculture, but in uh, Southern California's uh, water community. Eric and his wife, live, uh, Jennifer, live in Carlsbad and have two grown sons. So, Eric, tell us how you became involved with the Farm Bureau and uh, San Diego County Agriculture. Well, you have to reach way, way back to my parents buying a small family farm in the city of Encinitas, and I joined the 4-H club. Uh -huh. From there, I became a, a member of the Future Farmers of America and then went and got my education at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, always with the intent of being in agriculture, and I've been very fortunate to stay in that business in San Diego County all these years. So uh, we're, we're smiling a little bit, Eric. Uh, I'm a, uh, this is Paul. I'm a Cal Poly grad, and Ingi's a Davis grad. We have this... Uh, 
this uh, friendly banter going back and forth about the uh, the uh, these two great institutions. So, uh, uh, two great institutions, but, but we've got her outnumbered tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm cowering a little bit here. <laughs> but who's got the better football team? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we have one at least. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm, I think our viewers would be, our uh, listeners would be interested, and our viewers uh, would be interested online to hear a little bit more, Eric, about the importance of, of uh, agriculture in Southern California, but more specifically in, in San Diego County, as we as we match up against other counties, uh, other states, and uh, around the country. So uh, perhaps you could educate us a little bit more on. Uh, on San Diego County agriculture. Well, what happens? Most people look at San Diego and they, they, they think about tourism. Um, and they, if they have an orientation, it usually has something to do with the freeway or the beaches. And they don't really recognize how much agriculture we have. But we've got about 300,000 acres of agriculture in San Diego County. If you look at all the counties in the United States, um, we produce about $1.8 billion a year in um, agricultural crops, which ranks us in the top 20 of all counties in the United States. So it's pretty remarkable in that regard because, again, people don't think about San Diego as an agricultural community, but you've got to get off the, the beaten path and, and find the farmers up in the hills and the, and the foothills and, and uh, in places like Valley Center and, and Fallbrook. And we grow a variety of things here because our weather is so fantastic, but the, the number one thing we produce in, in our county is nursery crops, and we're number one in the nation in nursery crops. Our second biggest crop is avocados, and we're also number one in the nation in avocados um, as well. And then we have some other things that identify our, our county as well. We have more small farms than any other county, and we have more organic farms than any other county in the United States as well. So it's pretty diverse, about 5,000 farms. Uh, mean size, oh, average size about seven, uh, 30-some acres. The mean size about four acres, so... It's a um, large collection of small farms, but you put them all together, and uh, we're a player, and we're producing a lot of crops. Yeah, that's impressive. Boy, one of the top 20 counties in the whole United States. I knew we were major in the, uh, I mean, in the whole United States. I knew we were major in California, but that's right. very impressive from the national. So you served, uh, you know, the San Diego and Southern California water community for uh, a number of years in a number of capacities. Can you... Can you kind of explain how the goal of water security has evolved over the years and what the current strategy is? Yeah, well, you know, I'm really familiar with what's going on in San Diego County, and it's pretty much a reflection of what's going on in a lot of Southern California. And um, if we look at the history of water in Southern California, um, the very first people that were here, and we can go back to the we go back to the mission, the missionaries, and the missions, and the San Luis Rey Mission, and the San Diego Mission. They they put those missions right on rivers and they dammed them up. And so they built those first dams in the in the 1700s, and uh, San Diegans continued to dam all the rivers. And, and by the early 1900s, we had a dam on every river in San Diego County. But that didn't prove to be enough water. And really, when San Diego started to grow in the 1940s, there was uh, an absolute need for more water, and that's when we tapped into the Colorado River. So we brought in that first imported supply, arrived in San Diego County in 1947. And this followed eastern Sierra water that was coming into Los Angeles um, on the Los Angeles aqueduct and the Los Angeles area getting Colorado River water before we did. So Southern California became this place that now had local water from the, the local dams and the local rivers that have been dammed, but also started to rely on imported water from, from the Colorado River. Fast forward about another 10 years or a decade or so, and, and the water supply was still not sufficient, and the uh, state water project was built. And now water started to flow into Southern California in the 1970s from um, the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. And that pretty much brings us up today. So we've got these local water supplies. Um, we started importing water from other regions of the state, and, and those aren't expandable. Those, those are finite resources. And so now all the water districts are starting to do things like uh, your previous guest, Sam, was talking about desalination, direct or indirect potable reuse, um, recycling, conservation. So the, the whole idea is now you have to have this real vast portfolio. If you want to have a secure water supply, you need to have it coming from a lot of different places. 
How uh, how does uh, groundwater play into this uh, equation, Eric? Well, it depends on the region you're in. If you're up in the San Bernardino area or in Orange County, they're they're very very dependent on groundwater. But in San Diego, because of our geography and our topography and lack of rainfall, we just don't have much in the way of groundwater basins here. So we do have some, but they're not really enough to support you know, a municipal population. We have agriculture in those groundwater bases, and I'm talking about places like the San Luis Rey River Valley or the San Pasqual Valley. So there are farms out there, but not really heavy urban populations depending on that water. It just The groundwater just wasn't enough to take care of a place like San Diego. What, um, from a cost standpoint, uh, sounds like there's a diverse portfolio, as you'd mentioned, but from a cost standpoint, how does that all shake out? Yeah, and that, that's for agriculture. You just asked the key question. When we were, when we had local water, it was, it was inexpensive. When we imported water from the Colorado River in Northern California, it was still relatively inexpensive. But as we started to diversify, and, and do other things, uh, buying water from other regions, transfers, desalination, recycling. This, this gets expensive. And um, so the water supply has gotten more secure, but it's come at a cost. And for the farm community, um, it's a real tipping point for some of the farmers we have in our community. We, um, we're up to paying as much as $1,700 an acre foot for this blended water supply down here. If you're growing a crop like citrus or avocado, you know, permanent tree crops growing fruit, that is an absolute challenge, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a struggle for folks to, uh, to make it happen. And to that end, we, we've actually lost a number of farms and, and quite a bit of acreage because that price of water was just something they, they couldn't sustain, and in the face of competition from areas with a lot less water, a lower water price, um, they just had to give it up. Yeah, so our previous guest, you probably heard, said that the cost to a, you know, a homeowner or a consumer for desalinated water is about the same as the electric, the extra electricity that an extra refrigerator would cost in the household, which seems pretty doable for, for many people considering what we pay for, you know, other maybe less important things than water, like phones and cable and <laughs> other, other more discretionary things. But $1,700 an acre foot for an ag producer, well, either food needs to become more expensive or, uh, or I bet that the farmers are doing everything can- they can to use the least amount of water and get the most amount of crop, so more crop per drop. Can you tell us about how how you know your membership is um, is maximizing their productivity from every drop of water now expensive water that they that they can get? Yeah, it's a good observation, and that's really what it comes down to because the price of water is never going to go down. And um, as the municipal agencies try to get more secure water, the price is going to continue to go up. So the first thing farmers did is in this area is they really heavily invested in technology. And that's, that's installing micro-irrigation systems, regardless of the crop they're growing. That could be micro-sprinklers. It, um, it could be drip tape. Whatever it took to make sure the water didn't get exposed to the air, directly to the roots, right, right where the plant could use it. And then making sure on their timing that they're not putting any excess water on, put it on right at the time the plant needs it to, to make sure it's there. So that, that use of technology and investment in the irrigation systems was huge and, and really, really important. The other thing that a lot of growers have done, they've actually thought about changing crops, and we are seeing a bit of a change in the crop pattern down here. So instead of a thirsty crop like avocados, we're seeing some expansion in avocados, but we're really seeing folks do things like dragon fruit, the pitahaya. It's a, a very interesting fruit. We're seeing investment in olives, pomegranates, things that we didn't use to grow here, um, but now people are looking at these crops because they're, they're so water thrifty. And then there's technique changes. So we've got some hydroponic growers here that we didn't used to have, and they can grow vegetables with a lot less water because it's a constant recycling system. And they tell me their water usage is about 85% less than a similar field application of water. So that, that's really a substantial change. Then avocado growers are getting really creative because we have more avocado acreage than anything else, and it's our highest water user. Traditionally, avocados have always been planted 100 trees per acre, 
But now growers are out there and experimenting, planting up to 400 trees per acre. The amazing thing they've discovered, they're not only picking more fruit, but they're actually using less water. They're, 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 they're putting less water on 400 trees than they used to put on 100 trees for the simple reason. They keep the trees trimmed and low to the ground, and it creates less transpiration because the trees aren't high and up in the wind, uh, pulling the water off the trees. And so uh, they, they did this dense planting to increase the amount of fruit, but um, a side product's been showing that actually the amount of water they use is actually going down. That's and those are the kind of things farmers are doing. They're having, you've got to produce more. Yeah, on, that, on that investment in water, you've got to produce more end product. So it's not only the irrigation technology, it's also their production practices, agronomics and, um, you know, density, uh, like we kind of see in other fruit markets, in the apple markets, uh, not big trees, but almost vineyard-type apple orchards. Yeah, and we see that in olives in Northern California as well, a lot of other crops. And so now uh, folks like the avocado growers are taking a, a page from that and learning from it and saying, maybe we can do the same thing here. So the early returns look good. Um, what's not completely known yet is how much canopy management that's going to require. Avocado tree, if you've ever seen them, they want to get big. They're just bursting at the seams to get to get 30 feet tall and 30 feet wide. So um, it's, it's a trick of keeping those trees small and discovering how much pruning has to take place that doesn't disturb too much the, the fruit production. Eric, a, a quick question uh, for our listeners to compare uh, what our farmers are paying for water in Southern California. What is uh, so? What does a typical farmer pay? And I, I know it's uh, it's broad, but what does a typical farmer pay for water, say, in the Central Valley in Fresno, for example? Yeah, you know, I'm not a real expert on that, but I, you know, it's it's in it's in the low hundreds of dollars per per acre foot, and sometimes growers just pay per acre and a, and a certain allotment of water. And I know growers down in places like the Imperial Valley understand they're paying even less than $100 an acre foot for water. So that's what's really driven San Diego, that price, to grow the high-valued crops we grow. It's not an accident that we our, our biggest crops are crops like nursery, avocados, and strawberries because they have the highest return per acre. There's a big investment in those crops, but if you're going to overcome the price of water, you're not going to be growing grains, you're not going to be growing... Um, uh, you're not going to be growing cotton, you're not going to be growing soy, you're not going to be growing the traditional field crops, and you're not going to be growing a lot of vegetables either. You've got to grow some very high-valued crops, and, and that's how we've evolved. So roughly our farmers here in, in, in this area are paying 10 to 15 times more than, uh, generally speaking, than some areas of the state, so they really have to be good at what they do. Uh, in order yep. to compete and, and continue with their livelihood. That, that's exactly right. And we'll take that a little bit further. They're also having to compete with growers in places like Mexico that, that pay even less for their water, or they live in a region with a lot of rainfall. So it really drives our farmers to have to be extremely efficient. They've, 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 got, to, um, they've got to invest, and they've got to be creative and um, use every drop of water, not have one ounce of that water get wasted. So it brings up another question. Uh, uh, the San Diego Water Authority has done, uh, uh, apparently done a remarkable job in, in uh, guaranteeing a supply as, as we continue to be uh, receive this pressure, environmental pressure for farmers. Uh, what what is being done with water quality? You know, the, the, the amount of salinity, for example, or... Uh, in compared to other areas, because I know uh, a lot of crops are uh, very salt sensitive. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so for our nursery growers, they're they're pretty much driving water through the entire root zone of that pot plant. So the buildup of salinity is, is not as big an issue. But for our tree crop growers, especially the avocado growers, this is a very, very big issue. Um, there was a time when a, a a larger percentage of our water came from Northern California, which is, has a very low salinity. The blend of Northern California water and Colorado River water was, was very good and worked really well. But we're getting more and more, and a higher percentage of our water is coming from the Colorado River, in large part to the uh, transfer of water we're getting from the Imperial 
uh, irrigation district for San Diego's uh, supply of water. So that salinity is building. And uh, the very unfortunate thing for the growers then is they have to apply a leaching quotient when they irrigate. So it just adds to the problem of the expense of water. Not only is the water expensive, but if the water quality is poor, they're going to have a couple of choices. One, they're going to have to put in some kind of RO system or something and, and remove some of those salts. And that's a very, very expensive proposition. Or when they irrigate, they're going to have to include a, a, a leaching quotient and have to actually buy more of that expensive water just to drive those salts through the root zone. So it's, it's a continuing problem. Um, I hear avocado growers talking about it all the time, and there's that fine line, that, you know, at what point can they tolerate the salts before they have to do the leaching? Um, and then we get this, what, what makes that problem a little bit worse is uh, we've had this series of dry years. Normally, the growers can expect to get some rain in December, January, and February that does, cup, does two things. Free water, that's really important. But number two, it really leaches out the soil, and they, they're getting a real good fresh start as they go into springtime with some, some good, clean soil. We just haven't had the rainfall in, in the past, and so the farmers are having to buy that expensive water and not get that leaching, so having to use the expensive water they buy to do the leaching with. So uh, problematic. It, the water quality is poor, price of water is high, and uh, we just need to get a little bit more rainfall in the wintertime. Yeah, well, as you recited kind of the history of uh, water development in the South, I mean, you know, it looks like San Diego is really at the end of the pipeline, and maybe that's uh, part of the reason, you know, looking at the state of California, we're at the end of the pipeline, which has forced us here in San Diego County to maybe be a little bit better um, at this game of water management and crop per drop than, than other areas. Can, can you comment on how your membership did this? How, how did they get to be better irrigators? Who helped them? Who educated them? Uh, um, how did they master this technology, which uh, Paul and I know clearly from working sure. in this industry all over the place that other areas haven't gotten yet? Yeah, well, remember our incentive, and so we can't take credit for having done this great thing as, as much as we, it, it was a survival mode because of the price. And so it wasn't a matter of choice, and so the growers did it. But they did it. Um, they, they relied very heavily on the University of California that, that did a lot of work for, for them down here on irrigation techniques and such. I think they really relied heavily on the vendors. Those folks who are out here creating the technology would come onto the farms, um, help the farmers figure out what they needed to do, and, and help them with those applications. Uh, because if the technology wasn't there, the farmers wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to do what they did. And so the vendors that were creating these systems became a really important part of that equation so that the farmers could, could get by with less water and maintain their, maintain their production. Yeah, that we, we being one of those vendors, I, I would like to say, uh, we also recognize that it's not just the equipment, it's also the use of it and the behavior, the management of it and the scheduling and so forth, which is a real challenge for for the growers and a real challenge for we vendors to um, to help with that end of it. Who, who has helped more with that? Well, you know, we, um, the county, Santa County Water Authority has been, been real nice, and they, they funded a program every year where they go out and do water audits for the farmers to test their systems, to make sure the technology is being used right. It's, it's a bit of a funny story, but they would go out and do these, originally intended to do this testing and do these water audits so the farmers could conserve water. Lo and behold, they discovered a lot of the farmers weren't putting on enough water. Yeah. They invested in this good technology that was putting the water in the right place at the right time, but then not putting on enough water to get maximum production from, from their crops. Mm. And so it's little things like that have been discovered along the way. The word passes, and folks start to figure it out. Sometimes it's not about using less water. Uh, more often than not, it's about using the right amount of water, placed at the right place at the right time, because that's really how you maximize your returns and, and maximize the amount of fruit or vegetables that you're going to get from your farm or your production area. Eric, I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts are, your vision is for for uh, Southern California agriculture, say in the next uh, decade or two decades. What what do you think in the few minutes we have left? 
Yeah, I, I think um, crops like nursery are going to be fine because they're not as um, they're not as susceptible to the high price of water. They're they're a little bit they're they're lucky in that regard. The folks who are growing permanent crops like avocados and citrus are going to have to increase their production per square foot There's, or per acre. There's no choice, and so we will see techniques like dense planting, or maybe someone will come up with something else. And then I think we're going to see some pretty good growth in uh, wine grapes. Wine grapes are very popular here, very low uh, in water use. It's just something a lot of people don't know about, but there's a bit of a buzz about it. Um, we've come from a place of having only a couple of wineries a decade ago, and now we've got, I think, 120 or 130 in San Diego County. So that's catching on. So growing those kind of things, and again, I, I mentioned all of this before, dragon food and such. So we're going to see a change in the mix of crops that we go here. Still got good soil. We've still got the best weather. We just have to figure out how to maximize that water use. Do you, do you anticipate fewer acres and some of these, some of the uh, less productive or uh, lower value crops um, selling out to developers for um, housing developments, or do you think our acreage will be net stable? Well, I think what will happen is we will have fewer acres, but we will produce more. Yeah. Because we're just going to do a much better job of it, and the farmers will be on less acres. A lot of our farmland is not really in the path of development um, around San Diego County. If you look where our avocados are being grown, and that's the most threatened crop, they're on very steep, rocky hillsides. Avocados may be the highest and best use they'll ever be on that property. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, there's no doubt there will be some development pressure. After all, we are in Southern California, um, but uh, some of that land is not in the path of development. Um, I feel very optimistic that uh, agriculture has been in San Diego County for hundreds of years, and and, uh, farmers are figuring it out. It's something they really like to do, and they're embracing technology, and they're embracing new crops, and they're embracing changes in techniques for growing these crops. So uh, uh, for those who figured it out, I think we're we're out of time. We appreciate uh, you uh, being uh, here with us this evening and sharing this important topic on California agriculture. Thank you very much. Great show, great guests, great topic. Join us next week on The Water Zone, and 